Captain Crowther, what memories have you of the service between Brisbane and Singapore in 1934 and onwards? In 1934, I operated the first service from Brisbane to Darwin, and Captain Allen then took over and flew in command to Singapore with First Officer Purton and myself. On that particular flight, uh, there were still a lot of unknowns with regard to the DH-86 and its performance. We did not have flaps on those early flights, which made getting into the airfields in western Queensland and the Northern Territory uh, quite difficult. From Darwin on, I recall, we went into probably one of the worst storms that I've experienced. Uh, Captain Allen was at the controls and he had to work quite hard on that. We, I was sitting in the cabin and we, one or two passengers and myself, found that when we got out of the storm, the water from the heavy rain was swilling on the floor of the cabin of the DH-86. From then on, the first flight was uneventful. Some of the points that one would recall at this stage are the lack of general facilities that we had and much was left to the captain uh, and possibly we developed a sense of low cunning. Little was known about the weather in the tropics and we had uh, facilities which were, well, very primitive as you can imagine. For instance, there was no direction finding anywhere except in Singapore and also in Palembang. We had a loop aerial around the cabin of the DH-86, but that didn't work. So radio communication was really uh, only confined to uh, two-way communication, weather and position reporting. The weather information was... We had a very good backstop in Darwin... The Australian authorities established a good station there very early in the piece with a very efficient forecaster who was able to make the best of the information that he could get. But between Darwin and Singapore, it was usually a cable from, say, Surabaya before we left Kopang or... Lombok on the westward journey and it was quite sketchy because as you know uh, a weather report uh, four or five hours ahead of the time when you would arrive uh, is of little value. Uh, the uh, facilities with regard to uh, food and uh, on the way some of the things were quite amusing for instance uh, I can recall we used to leave Kopang for Surabaya with a hamper and in that hamper, quite foreign to us, there were sandwiches of bacon and eggs and strawberry jam, which I think is worth recording. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the service stopped westbound at the island of Lombok 
little place called Rembang, and we slept overnight in a small rest house under mosquito nets. On arrival, the main thing was to have a bath, and the Dutch authorities there provided what they called a throw bath. Uh, we got to like that. The water was cool and very refreshing. But one little joke about it, one of our senior directors went over there for the first time and he got in to the main tank, which was something you never did. One of the observations uh, that one could recall is that at every point where we landed in the uh, then Netherlands East Indies, the Dutch commander would meet every Qantas aeroplane and uh, on arrival, as soon as we put the steps in front of the machine, the Dutch commander, or commandant, I think he was called in those days, most beautifully dressed in a white uniform, would be standing there to salute the captain as he came down the steps. I <coughs> am reminded, thinking about it this morning, of an occasion when I had only one passenger from Singapore to Darwin and then on to, to Brisbane. He was an American with a good sense of humour and he must have been observing what went on with regard to Qantas services very keenly because on arrival at Daily Waters after a morning flight from Darwin I was delayed waiting for a connecting aircraft from the west and figuring out my schedule from Daily Waters to Longreach it would mean that I would have to cut all time I could on the ground, and this was a little disconcerting. The aeroplane came in eventually, some possibly 45 minutes late, and as it taxied in, the captain, whose name was Jim Branch, put his head out the window, and uh, I was standing by, and I made some facetious remark to him, and uh, he made a rude sign to me and he said, to hell with you, Bill. Uh, I'm not interested in what your timetable is. And standing behind me was the American who said, hi there, Skipper. I don't think you're half so important in your own country. <laughs> now, talking of passengers, uh, what, what sort of characters did you fly in those days? Very interesting people. We as you know, made night stops and we would get to know them. It's difficult to recall names at the moment, but uh, they were leading business people, um, very high-ranking uh, persons. And on one occasion I recall one interesting passenger we brought out from London on the flying boat, I think in 1939, he made use of the what we call the promenade deck. You recall there was a rail. He was a professional ballet dancer, and he entertained the passengers every morning by doing his bar exercises. Going back to the DH-86, Captain Crowther, um, a lot of people have talked about the directional instability of this aircraft. Did you have experience of this? I would think you're referring to swing in the takeoff. Well, it was a little difficult until you got used to it. 
which meant that we started the initial takeoff by opening the starboard engines ahead of the port engines, and that kept the aircraft straight by manipulation of the four throttles. Otherwise, there was no, no problem. There was a lot of talk about it, but it wasn't any great difficulty to handle. Now, in 1937, you uh, converted to flying boat operations. Um, did you find the handling of the flying boats uh, a difficult operation to learn? Well, it was new technique which had to be learned, mainly the handling of the flying boat on the water. And we went to uh, London and then, after doing a technical course on the engine and the aircraft, went to Hamble for instruction there on Calcutta's. I might tell you a little story about that. I was out in Calcutta one day and you recall they had a, a particular type of throttle which was like a spade handle which joined two outer engines to the centre engine and I was on the Solent and about and I took off or rather I can correct that I was about to take off, and on opening my throttles fully, the spade handle broke off. And <clears throat> all I could do was uh, stop the engines by flicking the switches. The engineer said that he could open the throttles by pushing them open with a screwdriver, but I wasn't happy about that, so we sailed it back, downwind, uh, back to Hamble. But the point I make is that the Queen Mary came up and uh, I had a great job getting out of the way of the Queen Mary, which <laughs> made it quite exciting. But it was an interesting exercise to sail the flying boat back with only one engine, back downwind, and then turning the corner around up the Solent. Captain Crowther, how vital to the development of the Qantas Kangaroo route do you feel the flights from uh, Perth across to Ceylon were? The wartime route that we operated from Perth to Ceylon became a very important route during wartime as it provided a connection, air connection between Australia and the British High Command in India carrying uh, very important uh, personnel, aircraft, and diplomatic mail. The payload was very small, as one can imagine, on that long distance of 3,500 statute miles with a small aircraft like the Catalina, but it did provide a useful wartime service. After the war, there was the question of the establishment of the of Australia's overseas airline and the fact that Qantas was already operating the airline across the Indian Ocean it was just a matter of switching back to the original kangaroo route and that made it feasible for Qantas to get moving on the new development of post-war operations despite political pressures for other suggested operators. I believe there was a fair amount of competition for the operation of the overseas routes. Yes, there was, and particularly Australian National Airlines. Uh, you'll recall also that later 
Qantas failed to uh, establish the route between Australia and the United States across the Pacific because Qantas did not at that time have suitable aircraft. And the uh, British Pacific Airlines Commission established the route. Later it came to Qantas. You mentioned the uh, name Kangaroo Route, um, which to a lot of people, of course, is the, uh, from the point of view of England, is the eastern routes. Uh, how did the kangaroo name come about? That's an interesting question I'd like to relate. I was in my chairman's office, Sir Hudson Fish, talking about route, the route operation in general across the Indian Ocean, and after our talk had concluded, he said to me, why don't you call your route, your route some name? And quite casually he said, oh, I don't know what you might think up. He said, why don't you call it the kangaroo route? At first, that didn't appeal to me. I made some remark and left his office to return to Perth. On the flight back, I began to realize what a good name it was and tried it out on several of my friends, including Captain O.P. Jones, the famous British captain, airline captain, who was there at the time. And then following on that, I tabled Sir Hudson and asked him, would he please call it the Kangaroo Route? So that's how this main trunk route, one of the world's busiest trunk routes on such a long distance, has become known as the Kangaroo Route. Now, what are your principal memories uh, of the time when you were manager of the Western Region? That started with the Indian, Open, Indian Ocean operation and wartime. Uh, then <coughs> the main administration returned to Sydney. During the war, it was split between Sydney, Brisbane and Perth. The head office began to swell in personnel after the war in Sydney and I was designated as a superintendent of the overseas operations on the west. Then later it became uh, operations manager and then after that manager of Western Division. Uh, it was, of course, the and always will be, I would say, the most important route that Qantas has from the point of view of traffic and communications with the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, there were many problems that I can recall, and one of the main features was endeavouring to have established at the various main points along the route the modern facilities required for the safe operation of modern aeroplanes. The route, what route uh, facilities always lag behind the standard of the modern aircraft when one considers constellations, super constellations and so on. We had uh, many representations to the technical side of IATA uh, British Overseas Airways were, were a tremendous help and eventually uh, governments were persuaded to make 
facilities suitable for the present-day operation. But that was a long period of development. Also, the improvements in techniques and pilotage. Uh, the Department of Civil Aviation in Australia was very helpful on that. And we set up uh, advanced procedures. Some of them, quite funnily enough, uh, were uh, brought across with us from the Indian Ocean operation. In many details, we had experiences there which led to uh, covering up on eventualities which may occur, all in the interest of safety. And the development of the the airline captain, as he stands today, a very uh, highly technical person with the right temperament to take the responsibility of such valuable equipment and numbers of passengers. And that was, I would say, the most interesting side of being operations manager of Qantas during the post-war development period. How much of a say did you have uh, whilst you were in this position in the choice of aircraft for the route? Well, only that I played a, a part with a lot of others. We had some very good technical people and they were of great assistance in, evalu in evaluating the performance and other features of aircraft. Our Captain Allen was one played the leading part and we also had uh, the present engineering, director of engineering, uh, Ron Yates, uh, another person, uh, including also myself, I played the part.